It's an honor to be here today. I'm glad I got here. I left Winston-Salem this morning at 6.30. I usually come through Charlotte, and I place this address in my GPS. <clears throat> I've been through three cow pastures and two pigsties this morning. <clears throat> All over this country, I've taken the tour, scenic tour, but I'm glad I'm here. This is my favorite, one of my favorite colleges in America. I appreciate this college because uh, it has stayed the same. And uh, as a matter of fact, we've had two students from our school, Derek Suttles and uh, Kevin Dabb, uh, both out being greatly used of the Lord. Uh, they came through this great school, and we're delighted. We've got another student on his way here. I'm going to send him here a different direction, but he's on his way here. <laughs> and... Uh, He'll be here a couple of years, I think. Tremendous student. It's good to see you. Uh, I was noticing your smiling faces. That's always encouraging. And I hope that uh, that continues. You have your Bibles. Would you join me, please, anywhere you want to? It's all good. But uh, if you'd like to follow me this morning, let's move to the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, chapter 39. When I was asked to come, I was asked to share with you uh, something about a new venture that we're in. I have been on the board of the North Carolina Christian School Association for many, many years. We're a 501c3 organization. We decided that we need to do something to try to network our churches together across the state of North Carolina to stand up for our Judeo-Christian values. So we spun off from the North Carolina Christian School Association, a new organization. I have a brochure I'll be glad to share with you at the close of the service today. It's called Return America. We're 501c4. God has greatly blessed Return America and continues to do so. And uh, I want to kindly speak to our hearts along this theme this morning from Isaiah chapter number 39, verse number 8. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, Good is the word of the Lord which thou hast spoken. He said, Moreover, for there shall be peace and truth in my days. I'm sure most of us are aware of this passage of Scripture and the background. God sent Isaiah down to the house of Hezekiah, told him to set his house in order, that he would surely die. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed and reminded the Lord of his years of service, his life. God heard his prayer and sent Isaiah back down to his house. Tell him that he had heard his prayer and that he was adding, adding an additional 15 years to his life. When the king up north in Babylon heard about this extension of life, he sent a delegation down to the house of Hezekiah. You'll notice that in verse 1 of chapter 39, he brought gifts to share with him. 
And when the delegation came, Hezekiah made a tremendous blunder. He took the delegation around and showed them his gold, his silver, his ointments, his spices, uh, all of his possessions. What he failed to understand and realize was that Babylon up north had already conquered some six to eight nations and had their eyes set on Hezekiah's kingdom. They left. God sent Isaiah back down to Hezekiah and said, what did they see in your house? He said, all that's in my house, I've showed them. My gold, my silver, my ointments, my spices, my armaments, all that my forefathers have given unto me, I have shown unto them. Isaiah said, I have a word for you from the Lord. The day will come when the king up north will come sweeping down into this country. and He will take away from you all of your gold and silver and ointments and spices and all of your armaments. And catch this, your two sons which are yet to be born will be taken out of this land. They will be taken into a foreign country where they will literally become eunuchs in a foreign king's household. When Isaiah shared that with Hezekiah, Hezekiah made two tremendous statements in our text. First of all, he said, good is the word of the Lord. He was correct. The word of God is good. I'm grateful for the Scriptures. Someone said to Spurgeon one time, why don't you defend the Bible? He said, defend the Bible. I'd rather, I'd rather defend a mountain lion. He said, turn it loose. It'll defend itself. The Word of God is forever settled in heaven. We're saved not by corruptible seed, but by incorruptible, by the Word of the Lord, which liveth and abideth forever. If you look in the chapter that follows this chapter, Isaiah verse 8 said in chapter 40, The grass withereth and the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. I'm grateful for that. A young preacher trying to get a group to preach to on a street corner placed his Bible down on the street and covered it up with his coat. He started running around pointing to it. It's alive. It's alive. He finally got a group of people gathered around him, and he picked his coat up, picked his Bible up, held the Bible up. He said, it's alive. The Bible is alive. And it is. One of the great preachers of yesteryear says, the Bible has hands. It takes hold of me. It has feet. It runs after me. And it does. Having been in the ministry now between 35 and 40 years, I have found the comfort and the consolation of this Bible many times after the midnight hour when God could speak to me through His Word. I'm grateful for the Word of God. And you can be grateful that you're in a school that does not compromise the truths of the Scripture. This school stands firm upon the precepts of the Word of God for which we're grateful. And learn to love the Bible. Learn to love the Bible. Learn to cherish the Scriptures. But it's the second truth that I want to speak to us about 
today that Hezekiah said, the second statement was this, for there shall be peace and truth in my days. Think about it. In so many words, he said, I have the assurance from the Lord that during these additional years of my life, there will be peace in this land. Although God has said the day will come when the enemy will come and take away my children and take away my possessions, I, Hezekiah said, I am not really concerned about that. I have the assurance that during my lifetime there will be no enemy coming across our borders that we have to fight. We will not have to take our soldiers and go beyond our borders to fight incoming enemies. He said, I have the assurance that during these years there will be peace and prosperity. Therefore, he said, I will not worry about what happens to my children. I will not worry about the next generation, although I recognize that they will come and take my two children out of this country. They will become eunuchs in a foreign king's territory. It really doesn't concern me. I will let the next generation fight their battles. I will let the next generation fend for themselves. And what they choose to do, well, that's up to them. It doesn't really concern me. And I submit to us today that that has become the mindset of our generation. We are no longer concerned about the next generation. We're no longer concerned about the battles that the next generation must fight. And I can picture a day when my children and my grandchildren will be sitting around the table and they will be discussing the current events and the problems that surround them and they can will probably say, why didn't my pawpaw or my dad or my relatives or why did, why did not the previous generation do something to prevent this from happening to us? The truth of the matter is we do not have, I do not have, my children do not have the same freedoms that my father had. In 1962, nine men dressed in black robes said suddenly that it is now against the law to pray in our public school system. No legislation had been passed to which they could point. No judicial uh, no, no judiciary had passed a, a decree that they could point to and say, we make this decision based on this judicial decision. Suddenly, the Supreme Court started legislating from the bench without a precedent. And they said it is now against the law for our young people to pray in the public school classroom. Over 150 years, that had been the normal. And suddenly it's abnormal. One year later they came back and they said it is now against the law for our young people to open the scriptures in the public school classroom. Listen to what they said. The Supreme Court justices stated that if those young people are exposed to the scriptures without someone interpreting the scriptures for them, it might cause psychological damage. In other words, they said if a young student in the public school system it's taught about the Good Samaritan. It might cause brain damage. If they hear about heaven or hell or Jesus, it might cause brain damage. I can remember attending public school as a young boy. My teacher read a Bible story to us at the beginning of the day. We had prayer before lunch. My dad told me who attended the same school I attended 
that they literally would close the school down a couple of days a year and bring all of the students out in the auditorium and all of the faculty out in the auditorium and they would bring in a local pastor and he would preach from the scriptures to that group of people. No one had psychological damage. No one was sent off to a mental institution simply because they were exposed to the truths of the scripture. As a matter of fact, out of those generations came good husbands and wives and mayors and councilmen and women and county commissioners and leaders in our nation who loved the Lord and gave us some of the freedoms that we still hold dear today. 1973, the same Supreme Court said the most dangerous place in the world for an individual to live is inside of their mother's womb. That has been over 50 million people ago. Over 50 million people have been slaughtered in the abortion mills of this country. In 1980, the same Supreme Court came down with a decision that says it is now against the law for our young people to be exposed to the Ten Commandments on the schoolhouse door. Listen to Wall. Listen to what they said. They said that if those students uh, meditate, contemplate those Ten Commandments, they might be persuaded to keep those commandments, and they said that is not a permissible issue. 1985, they came back again and said, it is against the law for a young person in a public school classroom now to bow their head in silent prayer. Can you imagine anything so absurd as seeing if you look in a classroom and a student has his head or her head down, they might be breaking the law. 1992, prayer at graduation is outlawed. 2000, 2002, ball games, prayer is outlawed. Something has happened to this nation. As Jude said, it has crept in unawares. And we're in trouble in this country, and we need a generation of people like the boys and girls, the men and women in front of me today that can get a hold of this thing and can go out of this college and start soul-winning churches, but not only soul-winning churches, churches that will get involved in the local community to change our communities and to help turn this nation back to God. I still believe this is the greatest nation on the top side of God's earth. God has blessed America. I'm thankful for that. One of my heroes of yesteryear was a man by the name of Peter Muhlenberg. Peter Muhlenberg was a pastor in Virginia, pastored two churches. Peter Muhlenberg came under the influence of Patrick Henry. I love Patrick Henry. When I read Patrick Henry, he stirs me. After I read Patrick Henry, I want to kick something or throw something. He stirs me. And Peter Muhlenberg came under the influence of Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry stood up in the House of Burgesses in Richmond, Virginia. And of course he had around him some of the same problems we experience today in our Congress. He had some liberals. And they said to Mr. Henry and to the House of Burgesses, we don't have a standing army. We don't have a commander-in-chief to lead an army. And uh, we just need to kindly lay back here. We, we don't need to get involved. We may have more problems if we get involved than if we don't. Patrick Henry stood up, a house of Burgesses, and you know the last part of his statement, give me liberty or give me death. 
And he stirred that group of people. And he said to that group of people that day, those additional ships coming towards the shores of this country are not coming as friends. They're coming as foes. Those additional boots that are coming upon the shores of this nation, they're not friends. They're foes. Peter Muhlenberg came under the influence of Patrick Henry. Peter Muhlenberg went back to his church on Sunday morning. The British had ransacked Williamsburg. He took his Bible and he read from the book of Ecclesiastes where the Bible says there's a time to be born and a time to die. And Peter Muhlenberg made this statement. He said there's a time to pray and there's a time to fight. And he said the time to pray has now ended. And he said it's time to fight. He pulled off his clerical, had on a black clerical robe. Peter Muhlenberg pulled off his clerical robe and underneath his clerical robe was a bright blue revolutionary uniform. He reached down under his pulpit and pulled out his musket. And he walked out of his pulpit and as he walked down the aisle, he said to his people, we have been handed these rights, we have been given these rights, we have been given these freedoms. If we do not fight for them, we will lose them. He walked out of his church. 300 of his men got up that morning, walked out of the church and gathered around him. And they went off and joined General George Washington. And they fought some of the notable victories of that era. The battle of, at Valley Forge in Yorktown. They contributed to the ongoing freedoms of this young nation. Now, Peter Muhlenberg had a brother named Frederick Muhlenberg who pastored a church in New York City. And Frederick Muhlenberg wrote to his brother Peter and he said, Peter, you should stay out of politics. I have heard that so often since we started Return America. He said, Peter, you should stay out of politics. God's called you to preach the gospel. It's amazing at the mindset of this generation that believes that. And yet if you study your Bible, you understand that the greatest people, the greatest leaders you find in the Scriptures, the holy writ of the Word of God, were people that got involved in politics. Moses went to the political head of his day and said to him, I just want you to understand, in so many words, there's going to be an exodus. It was Elijah that went before Ahab and Jezebel, the political heads of his day, and he said... If you want water, you need to go get your bucket full because I've got the key and I'm ready to turn the lock. And there's going to be a drought in this country. It was Nathan that got involved in politics when he went before King David and stuck his finger in his face and said, Thou art the man. It was Daniel that got involved in politics when they said, No more prayer. And they threw him in the lion's den. Of course, he used uh, Leo's mane for a pillow and his tail for a fly swat. Had a relatively good evening that evening. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we will not bow down to the rock music. And I would remind us that John the Baptist did not lose his head because he was preaching the gospel. He lost his head because he got involved in politics. And the early church in the book of Acts got involved simply because they refused not to preach in the name of the resurrected Christ. And they said, we ought to obey God rather than men. And they kept on preaching. 
And Frederick Muhlenberg wrote to his brother Peter, and he said, Peter, you, you, you should stay out of politics until the British came to New York and ran him out of his church and his people out of their church and confiscated their property. Then he wrote a letter back to his brother Peter and said, Peter, I'm sorry. He was right. I was wrong. I want you to forgive me. Frederick Muhlenberg then ran for Congress and got elected. And if you look today at a copy of the Bill of Rights, you'll find two signatures at the bottom. And one of the signatures is that of Frederick Muhlenberg. He got involved. It cost him, but he got involved. They came to King George and they said, King, who bothered you the most? Who disturbed you the most in the Revolutionary War? Was it General Washington? And he said, no. He said, was it the Revolutionary soldiers that bothered you the most? He said, no. Could you please tell us who bothered you the most in the Revolutionary War? He said it was that group of people called the Black Regiment. The Black Regiment happened to be a group of pastors who derived their name from their black clerical robes, who did something highly unusual during that era of American history in the 1700s. Because on Sunday morning they would stand in their pulpits and preach the Word of God to their congregations and place the claims of God upon their lives. And then at the close of the service, after the invitation, they would gather all of their men together. And they'd go out in the field behind the church and the pastors would teach the men how to fight. Teach them how to fire their weapons. And those men that they taught to fight became known as the Minutemen. And King George said, the people that bothered us the most happened to be that group of black regiment and those Minutemen. And he said, the reason they bothered us the most is because they would not fight fair. You're familiar with the British, they would get in a line in a field and get on their knees and they would aim, but the British found that they had a mortal enemy. The Minutemen did not have the weaponry that the British possessed. And so King George said they would hide behind rocks and trees, and when the British would come through the woods, the Minutemen would pelt them with rocks or beat them with sticks. And those Minutemen were feared because they, all of the time, they were taking the British by surprise. One of the great black regiment preachers of that era in the 1700s was a man by the name of Jonas Clark. Jonas Clark pastored in Lexington, Massachusetts for 60 years. and He was one of the great leaders of that era in training the Minutemen. That night when Paul Revere waited on the opposite side of the Charles River, waited for the sexton to put the light in the belfry to announce the British were coming, and when he did so, Revere looked across the river and 
through the fog and he noticed the light and the signal had been given and he mounted his horse and he rode through the streets of Lexington. Occasionally he would dismount to knock on the door and to warn them that the British are coming, the British are coming. But that night, Paul Revere ended his ride down at the house of Pastor Jonas Clark. And down at Pastor Clark's house that night were two of the great patriots of yesteryear in this country. Samuel Adams and John Hancock. And the reason they were down at Pastor Clark's house was because the British had placed a bounty on their heads. They happened to be down at Pastor Clark's house and they're, they're praying and having a Bible study. And if you remember John Hancock, when he, did, when he signed the declaration, his signature is the largest. And he said, when this documentation gets back to the king, I don't want him to have to wonder who I am. Today, they use that phrase, put your John Hancock here. It means to write your name legibly. And John Hancock said, when this gets back, I want him to know who I am and where I stand on this issue. That night, when Paul Revere ended his ride down at the house of Jonas Clark, they too had a session of prayer. Because they knew in a few hours the British would be coming through. And early the next morning, Pastor Clark met with the Minutemen. Many of them were members of his church. And many of those Minutemen were older people. They had been under his ministry for 60 years. Many of them had been saved under his ministry. At 5.30 in the morning, Pastor Jonas Clark opened up the Bible to the book of Judges and he gave a short message, talked about Gideon. And that God gave victory with a small group of people and that he believed eventually God would give victory to their movement and to their cause and to this nation. That morning someone asked Pastor Jonas Clark, Pastor Clark, do you really believe that your men can fight the British? They're trained, they're well trained. Pastor Clark said, yes, my men can fight them because I personally taught them how to fight. And then he made this statement. Pastor Clark said, we are prepared, if necessary, to die under the shadow of this church house for the cause of freedom. He did not understand how prophetic those words were. Because in a few hours the British came through and the first shot was fired on the village green which they said was heard literally around the world that started the revolution. And when the British passed through Lexington, eight of Pastor Clark's members lay dead under the roof. One of his members lay dead on the front steps of the church. Now I want to repeat once again and please listen closely. Many of those men did not have to be there that day. They had paid their duties to society. They had, they had been faithful. They had raised their families. But they looked around and they said, somebody has got to do something. We will lose our freedoms if we do not fight. If we do not stand up and fight, then our freedoms, the freedoms that we now possess, will be taken from us. And many of those older people 
under the direction of Deacon Parker, Parker, who was a deacon of Clark's church. He led them into battle that morning. And they died for a cause. The cause they died for is the cause that you and I experience today in this auditorium. It's the cause of freedom. And had they not died behind us, we would not be enjoying this freedom today. We owe them. We owe them. Listen closely. We owe them a debt of gratitude because they paid the ultimate sacrifice. And they should be acknowledged as such. We owe them a debt of gratitude. In the 1700s, about 1750, had you been living in that era and picked up a newspaper, you would have found that in 1750 that over 50% of the information in the morning newspaper or the weekly paper contained sermons from the men of God of that era. Now think about it. 50% of the paper of that era, the papers of that era, contained the sermons of the men of God preaching into that generation in the New England states. One of the great men that came through this country in the late 1730s was George Whitfield. We would not always agree with his doctrine, especially the doctrine of election. He's in heaven now, and he knows that it's whosoever. But I have a sneaking suspicion that if God can use a donkey and a rooster and a fish, he can use a Calvinist. And Whitfield came to the shores of this country in the 1730s, and brought about the first great spiritual awakening in this nation. He preached from Maine all the way down to Georgia. Whitfield would start preaching in the morning at 4 o'clock. He would preach until 10 o'clock at night. Whitfield preached over 18,000 sermons on American soil. Benjamin Franklin was a personal friend of Whitfield. Benjamin Franklin said that after Whitfield came through and preached and this nation experienced this first great spiritual awakening, he said the church attendance doubled. And Franklin said you could walk down the streets in the cities. The doors of the homes were open, not locked. And you could hear moms and dads with their children inside of those homes reading the Psalms and singing songs of Zion together, he said it seemed like the whole world had been converted. Now think about it. It was out of that group of people that the Declaration of Independence in 1776 came into existence. It was out of that group of people one of the two greatest documents or one of the three greatest documents that's ever come across the stage of American history. And I believe first of all that would be the Bible and secondly the Declaration of Independence and then our Constitution some 12 years later. But I want you to understand that 29 of the signers of our Declaration of Independence held theology degrees.
29 of them. This nation was not founded. Listen to me closely. You need to get this in your minds as you go out to the mission field and as you go out to pastor churches. You need to get this in your mind. This nation was not founded by Islamists. This nation was founded by Christians. As a matter of fact, When Jefferson became president of the United States, this nation was spending 15 to 20 percent of its national budget to Islamic countries. Could you imagine 15 percent of our national budget given to Islamic countries? And the reason being, Islamic countries were confiscating our ships on the high seas. And the only way we could get our ships and our people back is to pay ransom money to those Islamic countries. When Jefferson became president of the United States, he said we have one of three choices. Number one, we can continue to pay ransom. Number two, we can build an army and we can go after them. And he enlarged on that. And they chose to go after him. It took us a few years. But at the end of his tenure, we no longer paid ransom. In the Marines' theme song, they've got that little phrase, the shores of Tripoli. That's where that phrase came from. That was the last Islamic country to fall. But we pulled their eye teeth. And we no longer paid ransom. About 1798, we had an Islamic congressman. He said about three years ago, this man from Minnesota was the first Islamic congressman. No, back in 1798, we had an Islamic congressman. He came in near around 1798. He went out in the early 1830s. He came in a Muslim He went out a Christian. Francis Scott Key won him to the Lord. We had some patriots back then. We had some people back then that recognized that this nation was founded upon Judeo-Christian principles because in 1774 our forefathers came together recognizing that the British had attacked Boston and this nation was in peril and we must do something So in 1774, our forefathers came together. And as they began to deliberate and to try to understand what they needed to do at that particular era, they said, why don't we bring in a chaplain? And why don't we ask the chaplain to exegete a passage of Scripture and to pray with us? There was in that group of people different denominations. There was the Anabaptists and the Quakers and the Presbyterians and the Episcopalians and the Congregationalists. All of them represented in that room. John Jay, who became the Chief Justice, stood up and he said, and he was a good man, he just did not understand, and he said, we must be careful that we don't offend any of these different movements. But they said, More than offending people, 
we need the presence of God upon this assembly. The next morning, they brought in Jacob Duchesne. And Jacob Duchesne was an Episcopalian priest. And he had more reality in his little finger than the whole Episcopalian movement today has. And Jacob Duchesne stood up in that room that morning. And he read the 35th Psalm to that group of people. And then he broke out into prayer. He had a little written prayer. But God so moved in that room that morning he forgot about it laid it aside. And the presence of God came in that room. To the extent that Adams wrote to his wife Abigail and he said it seemed that day that the presence of God in heaven came down and flooded that room that morning. That morning when Duchesne closed his prayer, he prayed, his prayer closed his prayer in this manner. All this we ask in the name and through the merits of Jesus Christ, thy Son and our Savior, Amen. And that is the first recorded prayer in the history, the official history of this country. And he closed that prayer in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They recognized this nation was founded upon Judeo-Christian values and they were not ashamed of it. If you take a tour of Washington, D.C., you must recognize the part that Christianity has played upon this nation. If you, go into, if you go into the rotunda and look over on the east wall, you'll find those life-size paintings. As a matter of fact, they're 360 degrees, but on the east wall of the rotunda, you will find this beautiful life-size painting depicting our forefathers when they left Holland. As you know, as you know the, the, the pilgrims left England the Puritans decided to stay. They said, we can purify the church. That's the main Puritans. We'll stay in it. A few years later, they came over here. They recognized you couldn't purify that which is dead. The pilgrims left and went to Holland. They stayed down there for 10 or 12 years. And they said, in Holland, we can't stay here. Number one, we cannot speak the language. Number two, we cannot get a job. We cannot hold a job because we cannot speak the language. But they said, the main reason we will leave Holland is because our children are being influenced by the worldly children of Holland. They said, we must leave Holland. There's a picture in the rotunda in the Capitol building, and it depicts Pastor Robertson, their pastor. He's got an open Bible. Right at the top of the Bible, you can see the name Jesus. And they're praying, and he's asking God to give them deliverance as they cross the vast ocean. Because they've heard at Jamestown it is possible to worship God according to the dictates of your heart. And they're willing to cross that vast ocean so that they can enjoy what we enjoy in this building this morning. He prayed with them. And of course, they got on the speedwell in the Mayflower and they had to turn back because the speedwell and on and on. That's another story. 102 people came across on a little boat, and it was hurricane season, and they could not get on top side of the ship. They had to stay in a little compartment about 20-some feet wide and about 90-some feet long for 60-some days. And they came to the shores of this country, and, of course, the first piece of legal documentation was the Mayflower Compact, where in that compact they said, we're coming to the shores of this country for the evangelization of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Then there's a second picture. It depicts our forefathers after they landed on the shores of this country. And one of the first things they did, they took two sticks and formed a cross, drove the cross up in the sand, got down on their knees, and they prayed before the King of kings and the Lord of lords, whose name is Jesus Christ. They recognized Him. And then there's a third painting. And it depicts the first Christian baptism in this country, the baptism of Pocahontas who, by the way, after she got baptized, changed her name to Rebecca because she said, now that I'm saved, I no longer want a heather name. I want a biblical name. So it's amazing to that crowd that says Christianity did not play a part in the formation of this country that when you walk inside of the rotunda and look over on the east wall, there are two prayer meetings and one baptism. When they built a Capitol building, they had a special hall called Statutory Hall set aside where the states could send at least a statue of some great person to represent their state. Twenty-five percent of the statues sent to Statutory Hall were statues of men of God, faithful preachers to the Word of God. There was an emphasis on preaching. It was preaching that this nation was built upon. They came to John Adams in 1816, and they said, Mr. Adams, you lived through the Revolution. You was there in the upper room when they put the Declaration together. Mr. Adams, you was alive when the Constitution was put in place. Could you please share with us, Mr. Adams? In your opinion, Mr. Adams, could you please share with us what you believe brought about the revolution? And without any hesitation, John Adams said, Preaching! He said those men of that era preached. And if you look closely at the Declaration of Independence, it contains 27 grievances. And the preachers of that era for 30 years previous to 1774 had been preaching about those grievances. And it was the preaching that brought about the revolution. As a matter of fact, during that same era, they would have artillery days, again, where the pastors would meet with the men in the churches, special artillery days set aside, and the pastor would meet with the men in the churches, and they would have a Bible study and a prayer, then he'd go out and teach them how to fight. It's very interesting that on their national day of election, which took place in the month of May, before they would go to the ballots and cast their vote, They'd go to church. Every election day, they would go to church to hear the man of God and allow the man of God to take the Word of God and place upon their hearts the directives to determine the person or persons qualified to lead this nation. I could go on and on. My time's about up. Let me close with this a man by the name of Richard Caldwell, pastored church in Elizabethtown, New Jersey. He did some unusual things. Richard Caldwell would stand in his pulpit on Sunday morning and preach to his congregation, and then on Monday he would go out and lead the Minutemen against the British. And he would fight Monday through Saturday and then come in and preach on Sunday and see his family and go back home Monday and fight 
the rest of the week for the freedoms of this country. Early one morning, someone awakened Pastor Caldwell. They said, Pastor, the British are coming. He said, I must go to headquarters. I must warn them that the British are coming. He got ready. He mounted his horse. He started towards headquarters, and suddenly it dawned on him, I cannot leave my family. He had a wife and nine children. He turned his horse around, and he went back, and he said, Honey, get the family ready. I do not want to leave you here. It's too dangerous. She said, Honey, surely the British would not harm a mother with nine children. She convinced him to leave. He left a few hours. A British sentinel came down the road, walked up through the yard, looked through the bedroom window, and there stood Mrs. Caldwell with her eight children around her and one child, baby in arms. He raised his musket and shot through the window and killed Mrs. Caldwell. Set the house, set the parsonage on fire as they came through. Other houses were set on fire, and the neighbors got Mrs. Caldwell's body out of the house. Word came that night to Pastor Caldwell that his wife had been killed. He came, found nine grieving children around their dead mom, his dead wife. Two days later, he preached his wife's funeral. He took her out and placed her in a little tomb, said a few words, put his arms around his kids, walked out. Then he divided his children up among the congregation in his church, and he said to his church, if these children have freedom, I must continue to fight. Every week he would come in. They put a bounty out on Pastor Caldwell's head. So after an extended period of time, when he preached on Sunday morning, he had a Bible in the center of his pulpit, and he had a pistol lying on each side. Can't get them under grace, you'll get them under law. One day, the British are about to overtake them. They ran out of wadding for their shells. They went into a church, got Isaac Watts' hymn book. Where's the... Got Isaac Watts' hymn book. He handed the hymn books out to the Minutemen. They tore the pages out, made wadding for their shells, and as he handed them the hymn books, and as they were tearing the pages out for the wadding of their shells, he said, give them Watts, men. Give them Watts. <laughs> a year later, the church met on Sunday morning. Pastor did not show up. A runner came. He said, we're sorry to inform you. Your pastor was killed in battle yesterday. They began to weep and mourn. Rightly so. A couple days later, they took Pastor Caldwell out and laid him in that little tomb where he'd placed his wife a year previous to that occasion, and the church members took his children and raised his children. Now, why did he do that? He believed what a few of us still believe, that if you don't fight for your freedom, if you don't stand up, you lose it. And the attitude today is the attitude of Hezekiah. I'm getting along relatively good. Why should I get involved? Yes, we should get involved because we're losing our nation. The greatest institution that God ever established is crumbling in this country, and I'm talking about the institution of the home. And so many people are deathly silent. I've never met a man in my life that I wanted to kiss. It's not normal. It's abnormal. It's going after strange flesh. And here in our state, we cannot even get our legislature to pass an amendment to our state constitution 
And it's because God's people will not stand up. I want to challenge you so much more. My time's up. I want to challenge you, young people. Love God. Love His Word. But love this country. And if you don't stand up for these rights that's been handed to us, we're going to lose them and we'll end up in captivity. A man by the name of Martin Niemöller came into a large conference that had been called one day by the Fuhrer, and the Fuhrer walked through the crowd of preachers and he grabbed them by the hand and he patted them on the shoulder and told them what they wanted to know. This young man, Martin Niemöller, walked through the crowd Tapped him on the shoulder and the Fuhrer turned. The absolute authority is what the word means. Hitler turned and said, young man, may I help you? And the young man said to Hitler, sir, the soul of this nation, can you tell me about the soul of this nation? And Hitler said, young man, the soul of this nation, you leave that to me. And he ripped the very soul out of that nation. Nimrola was, was arrested. They knocked the door off of his parsonage and They took him downtown, and as they took him downtown, one of Hitler's chaplains came through and happened to see Niemöller and said, Martin, what are you doing here? And Martin Niemöller said to Hitler's chaplain, in view of what's happening to this nation, why aren't you here? And I say to young people today, why aren't you getting busy? Why don't you raise up and become a patriot and, and soul win and then go out to the marketplace and down to the county commissioner's office and the councilman's office And get involved so you can salvage this nation for your children and their children. We're losing this nation. God bless you.